You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Today is uh, Tuesday, November 17th, 2020, and I'm here with Professor Erwin Decker of uh, Erasmus University in Rotterdam. Erwin, uh, thanks for coming on. Great to be here, Pete. All right, let's just dive right into it. Uh, uh, you went to the LSE and studied philosophy of science, or you, you know, worked with Mary Morgan and others. And then you ended up by doing a thesis on the intellectual history of the Austrian school. Uh, but you've had a long interest in the interactions of art and culture. And I was wondering if you could discuss how you adjudicate between these various interests and the, your work that's more strictly economics, per se. Um. Yeah, so, so indeed, I, I went to London, and London was a strange experience because I basically came into an analytical traditional philosophy of science. The department was started by uh, Karl Popper, and um, yeah, that, that continued until this day, and Nancy Cartwright was there, and she really has a sort of analytical philosophy approach to the philosophy of science, so they were trying to make sense of realism and, and the use of models in economics. I wasn't really there at home, but I learned a whole lot in London, especially about arts and culture. So it, it sort of, in a weird way, put me on, on the track that I'm currently on, but not in the way that it was this program that I went <laughs> to, and then that put me on the path, but more so the, the surroundings there. Um, I, I remember being particularly struck that one day I walked into, um, into the Tate Modern, which is the, the biggest contemporary art museum they have in London. And then one of the paintings of Mondrian was described as being about a dynamic the search for a dynamic equilibrium now this might sound a little bit odd because as you know the Mondrian <laughs> painting is just straight lines so what was dynamic about that there is the later work uh, inspired by New York and by jazz music which is uh, arguably a lot more dynamic but they used similar terms and then in back in in, in the Netherlands when after a while I came into contact with Ario Klamer and, and he had many of these uh, similar interests and he um, yeah, I, I, I'm still not sure how to think about think about it in hindsight, because perhaps he set me up for failure. But he said, I had this project in the early 90s to um, demonstrate that a similar major shift occurred in the sciences as it did in art. Now, in art, we know that there is a modernist moment. Right? This is associated in literature with James Joyce. It's associated with Stravinsky and the modern classical music and music and in architecture with the sort of um, uh, purely functionalist architecture that we know of uh, and, and modern skyscrapers and the like. And um, he said there's something similar happened in economics. And I was very much taken by this idea. In the background, still this Mondrian painting. And then he said, don't you think that uh, a supply and demand diagram is just a, um, a, a Mondrian painting, but then with economic meaning? And I thought, yeah, yeah, this is it. So I, I pursued this project for, for a while, um, I think two years or so. And 
but it, it remained very associative. So it was, it remained very much a sort of personal fascination that was hard to communicate to others because you're seeing links. And there is indeed, there is in fact a, a quite a considerable literature on how uh, modern uh, natural sciences, especially physics, uh, overlaps with the development of cubism and a new new ways of thinking about time and space. But it remained very hard to put that in into writing and especially to convince others that my interpretation was plausible or um, the one correct one. So over time that um, I, I started developing that into places. Um, and so we had identified, I think at the time, three different places where um, modernists in arts and culture overlapped with modernists in economics, if there, of course, is such a thing. Uh, the, the most obvious candidate was Keynes in Bloomsbury, um, right? So Keynes was part of an artistic circle known, known as the Bloomsbury Group, perhaps most famous for Virginia Woolf and her psychological novels. And of course, in Keynes, you have an emphasis on the sort of psychological uh, workings of the mind and animal spirits. And so, so, so there were similar explorations and London at the time was anyhow a very interesting place. As, as you know, um, the LSE was also, lots of things were happening in, 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 in the 1930s. So that seemed to be a promising place. And then there was Chicago in the 1960s. It was a little bit late, but modernism takes long. And there's in the literature on modernism, the idea of late modernism. So that, and there are famous architects in Chicago. So there was a sort of sense that, okay, something might, might've happened there. Um, and then there was Vienna for the early modernism. Um, and I ended up writing my dissertation about Vienna. And in that dissertation, I really tried to show that similar cultural Tensions. I think that this is the word. So that became central for me. Initially, it was much more sort of looking for similarities, but I don't think that looking for similarities is the right way to go when you do this sort of thing. It's rather that a culture or a society today or back then sets a certain problem set, a certain there are certain tensions in that culture and intellectuals in any discipline respond to that. Uh, and they do so in, in different ways but the responses might have some similarities, but it's not all one response. So we shouldn't think of Vienna as one place where one thing happened. No, instead it was a, a place full of tensions in which different things happened. I think other authors have, have demonstrated that even better than me. And in some sense, you could say that the anti-Semitic polit politics that Hitler later popularized was already pioneered also in Vienna, right? So there's not only the, the stuff that, that we now remember, but there were also a, a more ugly side, but that uh, arose from the fact that there was lots of tension over there. And so I tried to elaborate how those similar tensions uh, motivated the people in the arts and motivated people uh, in economics. And um, yeah, I won't, um, I don't want to repeat that entire thesis, but the major struggle they had was the Habsburg Empire, which was a um, loose, unification of various cultures and peoples who were at, at the time emancipating themselves, discovering national awareness, national identities. And that uh, clashed with the sort of overarching, somewhat liberal, but not liberal in a sort of comprehensive say, sense, but more liberal in the sense of live and let live. So loose confederation, you might say, um, how that system came under intense pressure from the development of all these different groups that were trying to emancipate themselves, trying to um, get more autonomy and, 
and so everybody was 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 struggling with this as the central tension which many feared would lead to the decline of the Habsburg civilization right. so they found they tried to find new responses to uh, to that crucial question at the time in my uh uh, interview with Stefan Koloff, who's a co-author and collaborator with you um, on the German Historical School. He made a very interesting observation related to that with regard to Germany, which is that the reason why the classic British classical economists, by the time we're talking about late 19th, early 20th century, they treat the institutions as fixed and given because they've already evolved and been there. And there's not a transition in some sense going on. They were the first movers. So where he says in the German, his view of the Germans is that they really weren't historicists as much as they were like what we would call modern institutionalists, ordo liberals in some sense, or pre because the institutions were in fact what was emerging. And so therefore that's what they were studying, how the framework comes to be uh, formed. And they didn't think that you could then treat the, the institutions as fixed and govern and then study the behavior within institutions per se. Do you find that persuasive to you in this interaction, especially given, you know, your knowledge of the Austrians and their side of that debate? Yeah, um, but, but I, so, so I agree, but um, for, for this, the story between Austria and, and, and Germany is, is really quite different in the sense that Germany was the ascending power and, and the Habsburg Empire was the descending or the, 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 yeah. the, the power in decline. And so it was an empire, right? And empires were on the way out, whether that was the Ottoman Empire or the, 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 the Russian Empire or the Habsburg Empire. So they were on the way out. So they saw um, a structure, an institutional structure that they, that they, to a large extent, cherished very much. Although there was internal critique, right? In the, in the book, I detail how yeah. is best read as a sort of um, imminent critique of the Habsburg Empire. Um, and, um, but later, uh, authors really worried that, that, yeah, that this Habsburg Empire, the sort of framework that they had taken for granted was about to disappear. So they sought to yeah, fortify it or reinvent it so that it would be um, um, sustainable into the 20th, 20th century. And that's, I think, different because the, yeah, the, the, the German historical school really saw itself sort of riding the wave of history right. in, in, the, in, in the sense. So it was perfecting something that was emerging, right. um, which is very different than that you're defending something that's, that's in danger Fine. of getting lost. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, it's, it's um, having these conversations with you and Stefan, um, Put a lot of things in new light for me so i'm fascinated by it um can i add one thing on this yeah. point i want to highlight this one point which we accept for all philosophers and all people in the humanity or all intellectuals in the humanities and that is that they're in part products of their time right yeah. and there's a sense when we say that economics is a science that what we're doing is we're we're putting the economists outside of this dynamic yeah. um so we're, we're making them atemporal thinkers and right, part of what I, I try to do really in, in, my, uh, in my dissertation is to say, no, they were, I, I, I want to argue that they were, right, humanist intellectuals anyhow, and not everybody's going to be convinced. And they also write a lot, wrote a lot of fascinating technical economics. So there's no, no point in denying that. But I do want to argue that 
whatever they produced had cultural significance, right, for them. And so it was motivated by the cultural concerns of their time. They weren't shaped by it in any sort of deterministic sense, but they were responding just as the major philosophers that we now think of were always responding to the challenges of their age. Yeah, as you know, I mean, I, so I'm a big advocate of ideas in context for doing intellectual history, but I also view ideas, intellectual history as a tool for theorizing. And my, uh, uh, my savior in this is Kenneth Boulding because he has this idea of the extended present. But if you ask me, can I understand, you know, Karl Menger or Bombavrik or Wieser or Mises or Hayek or whatever, you have to basically contextualize all of their arguments in their time. But then if I want to theorize about my time and I want to draw on them, you know, how do I negotiate that? And so, um, you know, like someone like uh, Skinner or Pocock might argue that I'm not allowed to do that kind of temporal, you know, uh, time hopping or whatever. Yeah. But so it's, it makes me weird in the history of economic thought community, because uh, especially in recent years, history of economic thought has become the history of economics, which is trying to make the argument that you're doing and a lot of work on that. And my concern in that field is not that that work is invaluable. It's immensely valuable. It's, it's the real nature of intellectual history work, I think. But it's that the history of doctrine matters too, right? And so the fact that, in my opinion, <clears throat> Marx made logical errors, as highlighted by, by, by Bombavrik, that isn't just a um, 1880s exposure of the logical flaws in Marx. It's, it's as relevant today, you know, until they figure out a way to fix the transformation problem, then, you know, the fundamental critique that follows out doesn't work, right? And it doesn't matter whether or not people try to resurrect it, you know, Anwar uh, Schleck or whoever tries to resurrect it today without fixing the problem from, that Bombavrik identified. And so that crosses across time. But I no doubt that, you know, think about Mises's socialist calculation argument, right? It's in the context. The reason why now we can reconstruct and we see it's not so unique to Mises that Weber understood it, that Wieser has hints of it, all these kind of things like that is because it was all in the air, right? It was all, everyone was, it, it's kind of like today, you know, uh, you know, people are bouncing around saying all these kind of ideas again. And it's like, okay, you know, how can I not pay attention to it in some sense? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was motivated by, by the time, by the times too, right? Uh, I think it's now even more visible, but there we have liberalism in decline at the moment. And that was a theme that I wanted to connect across time. So, yeah. right, there was a liberal, basically a liberal progressive movement that sought to perfect liberalism. That for me is the moment I came of age. That was the, the 1990s, yeah. uh, where, where liberalism was on the ascent and was there was a feeling of perfectionism. And all of a sudden, that yes. yeah, world somehow collapsed and the very groups that I think liberals felt that they were speaking up for sort of started turning against liberalism. Yeah. And so this is also very much the how I re read, at least initially, the, the Habsburg Empire story is that um, yeah, yeah. they were slowly trying to develop a, a liberal society and it was incrementalist and it wasn't always, it was certainly always not always revolutionary, but it was incrementalist and progressive. And then, yeah, these mass movements turned against them. 
and they really yeah, did a, not did yeah struggle to respond. Yeah, I mean that's it's it's also you know there was uh, uh, again a sense of euphoria that then you know gets met with frustration, and that of course excites our imagination to try to explain you know what went wrong or whatever and and uh, whatnot. That gets me to my next question I wanted to ask you about, which is not really. It's, it's more about the arguments that are coming out of your shop in some sense. And in this case, identified with Ario Klammer's book, Doing the Right Thing. Um, and I know you've interviewed him for that and you know people can, can talk about that, but just one of the things that has struck me in the discussion of what you were just talking about, which is the critique of neoliberalism, is the elasticity of the definition of neoliberalism so as someone who actually like, I don't know, I guess exists inside of all of that conversation, one of the things that I found so alienating is that I don't recognize myself inside of it. Part of it is, is because my understanding of, 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 uh, of neoliberalism actually is, is how I read Ario's book, which is the application, unrelenting application of neoclassical economics into realms of activity outside of the market, including to improve government, to do all these kind of different things. And so it's how can I get efficient and I get and I forget the other kind of norms that are being called upon in these services. And so I wonder, you know, how you see this playing out methodologically, analytically and ideologically, I mean, I don't want to run away from that idea in the debates of the 20th and now the 21st century. Yeah. So I think there, there's two things in, in Ario's book that, that I think are uh, sort of key ideas, I think also that, that motivate my own work, although I, I don't go with him all the way to the ethical side. Sure. He has a, a, a father who was a televangelist, I think far before the term existed. So he was the most famous preacher on Sunday mornings in, in the nas in, in, on national radio. And um, so, so I think he has more of that, um, the, the sort of ethical background. But there's two things in his work that I find of great value. I think one is what some anthropologists call social provisioning of goods. So he has an enormous awareness of the fact that most um, uh, goods can be provided for in many different institutional forms. So I'm, I'm sure that uh, since they, they're being taught by you, you've already discussed Ostrom and notions of self-governance. Ario adds to that the family. Now, this is in part motivated by the field in which we both do a lot of pr practical research and teaching is that the field of the economics of the arts. And it's just simply true a little bit like for startups, most of the finance actually comes from within the family or the close uh, circle of friends. Yeah. Um, so the social provisioning there actually enabling your, your, your partner or your uh, child to be an artist or to become an artist before they, they get on a professional path all takes place within family or very small circle. So he call, calls it doikos. Um, and then there's social provisioning from the state. Um, right, and that will also bring us in, into ideology, but just as an empirical observation, it's important to see that a lot of things are socially provided for uh, by the state. So uh, yeah, I always have this discussion with my students who always say museums are a public good. And for the first five years, I always tried to hammer it out of them and said, no, 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 just look at the characteristics. People buy a ticket 
and museums can get congested. There's, there's, so there's rivalry, there's excludability, there's no way that museums are a public good. But of course, in some real sense, they are very, um, it is very true, at least for the European context, not always for the American context. Although the way you give tax benefits to private donors have, has of course some element of um, public provisioning. Okay. Um, but museums are in a very real sense in most European countries. Um, publicly provided. So uh, in that sense, they are um, public goods. So I think that's the one element. That's this social provisioning, and that can take place in many, many, many things. Then I think the other thing that Ario says, and you and I read him differently from how he reads himself, because, <laughs> um, but is that the most important things that we seek to realize with goods that we buy on the market actually take place in social circles um, where we share things with our friends. So we buy books on the markets, but we use them as inputs for creating stimulating intellectual conversations. We buy food, food at Walmart, but then we take it home and we turn it into family dinners and family parties, right? We buy drinks and so on. You, you can continue on and on. And so Ario says the real, the real important thing is not the transaction that takes place on the market, but the actual production, right? And yeah, there's there are some papers by, by uh, Gary Becker and Stigler, and um, yeah, I think his, his early co-author was uh, Michael or Michael, I, I don't know. I, I don't know him as well, but they argued that, of course, there's a household production function. So it can be reconciled, I think, with that way of thinking. Um, and it's actually, for me, tempting to read it that way because that way it makes it compatible with, with modern economics. Um, but even so, I, I don't think the Becker paper actually highlights how important this very fact is that um, the things we create um, within social circles, so from clubs, churches, of, um, sports, and so on, we all do that with inputs bought on the market, but the activities or the things that we really care about are ultimately produced by inputs of time and skills that uh, human beings de develop uh, and are, that are, don't happen within either the firm or within market transactions. So he wants us to focus away from, also in a, in a real sense, and I think we can talk about that later more, is where the value is created. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the, the, the way that economists measure the value being created is the amount of transactions that takes place on, on, on the market. And he says, no, the value is being created in the activities, in the sports club, at the, at the dinner table. So it's a poor measurement to say how much was the bill at the restaurant. You should ask how much did the people enjoy it sitting around and spending the, the evening together and having good conversations. Yeah. So he, he would say that's, that's where the value is, not in the, in the bill. Yeah, that's um, and and our effort to reduce that down to the cost minimization misses out on that aspect, and therefore, um, you know, cheapens our social experiences with each other. Um, yeah, and it, I mean, in some sense, so so I, my, my he of course moved away considerably, I think, also in, in, his, in his writing style, sometimes from economics. So I think there's still trade-offs, right? Because no matter where okay. you think that the value is created, you got to ask, um, where is the most value created? What friend do I spend most time with? Um, how do I divide time between uh, family and work, um, right? Um, but even in work, it, it would change a little bit how you think that the benefits 
being uh, generated uh, differ because you you turn work into a meaningful activity at least he he very often does so it's not an instrumental activity merely but also a sort of thing we pursue for its own sake um so 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 um that's there uh, the the, the trade-offs are still there but the costs are not as easy i think to pin down yeah. um and particularly time perhaps we have a have, have a poor understanding of of time as a as a as a cost or um also and yeah this is another thing that we might want to highlight is that sometimes i i'm not sure whether it captures quite um what is going on so um I, we study the arts and so people spend the night at the theater. If you do the opportunity cost reasoning for that, it's actually very, very expensive because the people at the theater are all high earners. We know that they skew um, right um, toward the highly educated and the highly earning. So we, we, we want to say that that's um, sort of three, four hours that they spend doing that theater stuff. So to understand, to, to, to sort of justify that as a rational choice, the, the benefits must be rather enormous. Right. Um, otherwise that activity doesn't make any sort of sense. Now it could be that something that uh, Zellerger says is true is that these are sort of separate domains. And so the trade-offs don't quite work across the domains. Now, of course, modeling that is, is tricky, but I do always find that at least somewhat plausible and um, uh, but again that might be culturally dependent but simply working evening hours in in in, in some um, western european countries is, is is not always an option and is socially frowned upon so the major cost might be that you're not spending the, the, the time with your family and if you're spending the time with your family anyhow you might as well make it enjoyable by going to the theater or the museum together yeah so that it's kind of yeah sealed off. I don't know how you would capture that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the one thing about about Klammer's work in general, and I mean, I think this is fascinating, is that um, is that in the large part, besides his conceptual examination of things, which is you know been always very insightful or whatever, he's kind of walked the walk himself. You know, like he tried to create. Um, you know, a learning environment in which people learn for the sake of learning, you know, and take the time and, and, and they and view that as learning for life rather than learning for an occupation. Um, and so, uh, you know, when you, when you listen to that and you listen to the, like the arguments behind it, it'd be hard to say that's not right. You know, when you were just talking about, you know, the, producing the family meal, I'm sitting there thinking about, you know, the love and attention that my wife puts into, you know, a meal when the kids are coming home or whatever, right? It's not like she just says, you know, hey, you know, Tony's is right across the street. Let's just call up the Tony's or whatever. And then yeah. you do that. And so we'll come back to that because I want to ask you about symbolism and goods and stuff that you, you know, are, are working on. But before we get to that, I wanted to ask you a question about your work on incentives, um, because, you know, one of the standard things, of course, in economics is to say incentives matter. I'm always uh, a kid around with my graduate students because Bill Easterly's book, The Elusive Quest for Growth, was such a, uh, a, a crucial book to a lot of one of the fields that I'm in, which is comparative economic systems development. And, you know, if you go back and look at that book, he starts every chapter with incentives matter, right? Then he takes a different policy. He's like, incentives matter. You know, he goes from there. 
And you're, you, you know, your work doesn't deny that, but you delve deeper into actually what incentives are. And, and um, I'm not sure if you were here at the time, but I'm always struck by, we had Roland Fryer uh, here to give a talk yeah, several years true. ago. Yeah. And, you know, one of his implications of that were, yes, incentives matter, but incentives are tricky. And, uh, you know, it, and that it's not as easy as we thought it was when we laid it out. And, uh, and, and that issue of the trickiness relates to the issue of the force with which an incentive hits. So this is, you have this really, really great paper on incentives in the review of political economy. And I, I just wanted you to, to elaborate a little bit about that. And if you can, is there, you know, what are the, 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 what are the challenges that you say in taking that kind of idea that you develop in that paper and then operationalizing it for students that want to do an applied project, let's say. Um, so, yeah. I'll just do examples only so that I hope that inspires um, some, yeah. um, some empirical ideas. So the first is uh, about, and, and we, we referenced this type of work, was um, what a journalist in um, from the Netherlands started doing after the financial crisis. So he went to the London banks. His name was Joris Luyendijk, but uh, it's a difficult name. I could send you the link. Um, and so he wanted to understand this bonus culture, right? Because a lot of people were saying, okay, this induces um, short, uh, short-termism. And so, and all the short-termism was basically a bad incentive um, um, that, or a pernicious yeah. incentive that worked in these banks. And so it uh, helped create this financial crisis. And I think what he came out with was something very different, namely that this banking culture was a competitive culture and so, um, in, as in every competitive culture, there has to be a prize. Um, so you have to get your name up on the scoreboard. Um, and much like, um, yeah, you, you, you're always a movie buff, but I think it's Al Pacino and Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross or so, where <laughs> he's the ultimate salesman. Yeah. Right? And there's a scoreboard. So if you make more sales, you move up um, on, 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 on the scoreboard. And I think this was his best reading. So, and that's not a reading at all that says, ah, there's a bonus. And so um, it's, it's the bonus that, that motivates people to do short-termism. Rather, it's, it's an understanding of the culture in which he says, well, these people wanted to outdo each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and yeah, there was also something, there was also sportsmanship. So when yeah. you had won, the, yeah, the party was on you that evening. So in, all, in some sense, it was also really about the sport because the spoils would be divided at the end more, yeah, well, more or less equally. The status was not divided equally. So there right. was all sorts of inequality and, and, and rankings being created. But right, this is an incentive that looks relatively simple, a monetary incentive. So I think the, the next work that I, I, I really want to highlight people to, and that one of my PhD students here, Blas Remich, is, is working on. So he's, he's one of the co-authors on this, on this piece, is intrinsic motivation. And I think all of the literature on intrinsic motivation shows you how tricky uh, incentives are. Uh, in fact, a lot of the literature on uh, intrinsic motivation, and for me, this was humble pie because uh, sometimes where I come from, you are always critical of, of neoclassical economics. Yeah. And Holmstrom won the uh, Nobel Prize, and Holmstrom's work is actually all about how tricky incentives are right. in internal organizations, right? So it starts from the very basic fact that he says, well, most tasks in, mo- in modern organizations make, are made up of different dimensions. Right? Our job consists of teaching, research, 
service and network building, right? And all, all of these four are very important to our job. And the moment that our organization incent starts incentivizing something explicitly, we all start to focus on that at the expense of the other ones. And that that's actually the organization ends up worse than it would be otherwise. Um, and the students might suffer because it's not always teaching that's incentivized that way. Um, so here, uh, an incentive that, yeah, I think would simply work um, is it true and I think this links quite clearly to Roland Fryer's work because you really have to understand what motivates people at 15 and yeah. it's not so, so obvious what motivates people at 15 right so yeah. it might be that that they like a game computer but um, to come in from the outside and say well we're going to give um, a, a game computer to, to whoever 15 might backfire completely because it might create a dynamic where some people feel that they have no fair chance anyhow so they just drop out so so they, the entire incentive backfires um, and so I think that yeah this this sort of dynamic is, is, is true all, in, in very very many places um, and Yes, sometimes just studying how complicated the incentive mechanisms that have sort of emerged over time uh, um, work uh, is, is, is very interesting. So, so a lot of practices that at, at first look rather odd um, uh, actually make sense. I think that that's the, the final uh, bit of, of that, that paper is that you can look at, and, and some of your students have also done this work, right? Look at strange situations where you think this is a habit that doesn't make any sense and then you can sort of See. yeah again humble pie but think why that institution has remained in place uh, starting not from the assumption that the uh, institution is silly but rather that most institutions more or less make sense or at least made sense 10 years ago uh, yeah. so they might have grown a little bit dysfunctional but not fully dysfunctional otherwise they they, they would have gotten rid of and so I think that that's what we try to, to do and that saying incentives matter is basically only the starting point of research and can never be the end point. Um, the end point requires understanding how people um, judge a certain situation. And yeah, I think uh, in learning and, and organizations learn, right? Everybody's engaged in learning all throughout the economy. It, setting up incentive schemes might be one of the hardest thing to do. Um, mm. Might also be the part of the job that in a weird way, isn't incentivized at all in academia. That the, the, the yeah. learning, the learning aspect. So, so it's interesting to me that Liberty Fund. Well, this is an organization you and I both know. They put us back together as students. <laughs> they say you do yeah. the readings and you sit for three days, which suggests that we are under under investing in learning. But in many organizations, this is a major problem, right? Because most people are focused in some sense on output uh, of whatever kind. So the learning tends to take a backseat. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, this work, and there's also in, in, in my teaching, we look at, yeah, sort of how organizations structure that. And it, yeah, to me, that, that's really fascinating because again, you basically have to insulate almost. I, we, we talked a little bit about, about this before, but you almost have to insulate parts of the activities and says, well, this day you can only do learning. Yeah, in, in the Netherlands, you say that you then go to the high. I, I don't know what, the equivalent is that so this is the countryside and then you have to spend a day with your colleagues just brainstorming but it, that, that captures the insulation right because we would not do it if we weren't sort of forced to to do the learning separately and so this thinking about how you might incentivize that or create institutions that facilitate it i think yeah, it's not at all easy and um, yeah 
So interpretive methods have a lot to, um, to do to um, contribute there. One of my, um, you know, uh, surprising articles I read when I was a graduate student is Fritz Mappa wrote an article about Jacob Viner after he passed away. And he describes Viner's work habits. So Viner spent every Friday of every week. No one could talk to him. No one could do anything. He was in the library and he just read the journals and he took these, these notes. And since the journals weren't as immense as they are today, he, would able, he was able to go from A to Z in the journals in a quarter of a year and then be able to start with A to Z again for the next quarter. But that's what he did every Friday. No one could interrupt him. No one could do anything like that. And he built that kind of framework in that for his constant learning about what was going on. And since he was reading across the social sciences and the humanities A to Z, it also meant that he, you know, he was, he was processing fresh stuff all the time, you know? And so it's kind of fascinating to, I think, to study how individuals in our business that, that we learn from develop strategies so that they don't get overwhelmed, you know, by the world. And so they're able to do that. I mean, that's, and, and, and what incentive do they have to do that? Right. Their incentive to do that is all intrinsic. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so 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 that, so they, yeah, that, that's that's indeed uh, with with the int intrinsic ones, right? So so it, it, yeah, so so this is one of the things we we do quite a bit in teaching because we have all these students who want who are going to work with artists or who are artists themselves, yeah, um, right? And so there's a dual question. One is about self management, and it's actually true that some of the romanticism about the arts according to the best literature that we read or at least that I find most convincing actually says that this is a form of self-management so the total dedication yeah. um, and the I do it for myself might not be purely intrinsic it might also have a symbolic element in the sense that it's really worth it um, and so the people at the top also tend to reinforce it that this is science or this is art and it's really worth giving your everything for it might also have exploitative elements to it right because there's a lot of unpaid internship and hardship before yeah. you really become part of the part of the circle but this this aura might have a sort of function yeah, a function um, yeah, yeah in the My, sense that it's it's the only thing that can can inspire the type of work that that that's required to do it well um, you know this, uh, the world doesn't necessarily know it, but my son, Matthew, you know, he has a little record store now in New York that he owns with a friend of his. But, you know, it took a long time for him to get into that. And he worked as a, you know, uh, you know, in various places, doing a lot of free things to people to build art studios and things like that. And, and uh, when he um, finally got the record store going and we were talking one time on the phone, my wife and, and, and I and him, and he said that he had an intern. And I like started laughing. I was like, you have an intern and it was a kid that was at NYU that wanted to like, you know, work in the arts or whatever. And Matt, I said, what do you pay him with? And he says, oh, we give him like, you know, some of, he can pick, you know, some of the stuff, the, the pieces or whatever, you know, when they come in or whatever, you know, these kind of things. And, uh, and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, so it was like very it was all barter economy basically, yeah. but it's part of that world. And, and, you know, that kid that was his intern is now like has his own like art little world that he's going into and everything. So it's, it is a kind of world in and of itself that I think is kind of amazing 
you raise a question which I wanted to is about symbolism in goods. So just to give you a, a context of this, um, you know, the, the class is reading Viviana Zelzer, Economic Lives. So the symbolism, symbolic use of money or the pricing of the priceless and all those things are things that they're interacting with. But it's also the case that about two years ago, I was at the conference at Northwestern to vet the Asimoglu Johnson new book, uh, Asimoglu Robinson new book, uh, sorry, and uh, on uh, the narrow pathway or the narrow corridor. corridor yeah. And we went to uh, dinner the night, uh, Saturday night, and the provost from University of Chicago was there. And uh, he turns to us as we were just about ready to start eating, you know, our salad or whatever dinner. And he says, what cultural practice that is accepted today will be viewed as abhorrent in 10 years? What one will be viewed as abhorrent in 20 years? You know, like that. And, you know, what, you know, like, like he's a very commanding sort of person. So he felt he could like point you out and put you on, you know, and, you know, eating meat, you know, smoking cigarettes, you know, these kind of things or whatever. And it, those because the symbolism of those could shift over time, right? And, um, and so, you know, I've been thinking about this ever since that dinner, uh, you know, meeting that like, wow, like things really can change and they can change rapidly. And if you think about the current COVID situation, social mores are shifting yeah. And which ones will shift like that and which ones will shift back or which ones will persist has to be a question that social scientists are going to have to explore and answer. And you're thinking about some of these things. Maybe you can talk about some of that work of yours, but also just very quickly going back to the incentive issue, you've written a paper on book awards and what role book awards play. Maybe as an entree into this, you know, you could you know, because one of the things that shocked me when I was a young scholar, the idea of publishing a book with Cambridge or Oxford was like this unbelievably, you know, like, wow, I made it if I achieved that. And then Tyler Cowen came upon me, you know, sometime when we were doing it. And he said, he goes, look, he says, you know, you made it when you certify the publisher rather than the publisher certifying you. Yeah. Right. So when you really made it, what matters is that switch. And like, I never thought about that before. Right. Like, what the hell is he talking about? Like, if I'm, you know, if Oxford's publishing my book, you know, I made it not that Oxford's thrilled because they're publishing me. But then when you think about it, it all of a sudden it makes sense. So yeah. but and same thing with awards and stuff. So do we certify the awards or the awards certify us? Yeah. No, so, so yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of sides to that, but I, I want to tackle one question because it's, it's the one that, that's on my mind most. And it started from the standard Akalov story about information asymmetries on the market, right? So according to this information asymmetry um, story, I think there are two basic solutions. Namely, you would have relatively uniform standards of quality on markets because that would facilitate it. And this is also what he sort of implicitly at least suggests, there's gonna be warranties and sort of lower level guarantees that this uh, product is at least functional. Um, but these are very ineffective in the arts. 
So you don't want to know that your the, the, the theater company only has certified artists or people who went to the theater school or something of the sort. You want to know that they're excellent. Uh, so in the arts, you have lots of quality standards <clears throat> that are far harder to uh, specify completely, um, but that nonetheless are very important for the functioning of this market and for the coordination taking place there. Um, and I think at the time when I did the book awards paper, and I, 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 I've moved away from it since, is that I wanted to understand how these different markets deal with these quality norms differently. Right. And so we first did one on film awards. And in film awards, it's actually, if you look at it, a relatively uniform standard of quality. So there is a segmented market. This is important to note, but for the commercial movies, more or less the awards juries all give the prizes to the same people. So if you think about it as a sort of informational device, it makes a lot of sense, um, right? The, the, the experts point to the, roughly the same thing, not always the same thing, but they have multiple awards to give out also for best actor and best supporting actor. So they can sort of signal about 10 movies that they think are worthwhile this, this year. That's different already if you look for the art house movies because every film festival wants to award its own movie. If you've already won an award at another festival, then you're almost out of the game. And yeah. so we demonstrated that this is true for the book market, which demonstrates there that it's apparently much more important to be distinct than to um, live up to some uniform standard of quality. So having your own authentic voice or being unique and truly representing something new or novel or dist yeah, distinct is perhaps the, the best term for it is much more important. And so when you look at these awards, they always go to different books. I think we found one book in France that won two awards over a 50 year period span. So this is really a long time and lots of years in which they can be given the same prize. It never happens. And um, so, so, so that, is says tells you something about the governing quality norms and Jason Potts, I, we, we both know him immediately said, so we need more book awards. And indeed we need more book awards, but we don't need more movie awards because they would simply be going to more of the same. And yeah. here they would be sort of representing uh, disti distinctive qualities for, for more books. And of course you can have that, right? Uh, the best female author, best book, book, book that came out of Africa. I mean, you can just keep on imagining awards that all awards some distinct quality that, that is different. Let me ask you now, a question real yeah. quick on that, because I don't know if you've been following, but like Sandel has a new book out against meritocracy and there's uh, the uh, uh, president of Argentina just said we have to abolish meritocracy. But I often think they don't really mean abolish meritocracy, but they mean changing what we count as merit. And it's fascinating because I wonder whether or not the examples that they draw are more like the movie awards and less like book awards. And oh. if they were more like book awards, we would say there's a diversity of our understanding of meritocracy and that's great, right? Rather than the idea that there's only one size fits all notion of meritocracy. Do you think that's right or am I misunderstanding their criticism? No, this is precisely, the, I use the metaphor of, of mountains and hills so I think a lot of people think of quality as one big peak, one yeah. big mountain, the Mount Everest. Um, and so there's a ranking all the way down um, and you wanna have a hilly landscape. So, and all the hills represent some distinct quality, right? So one represents the best science fiction movie out there. One represents um, the best sort of uh, atmospheric movie of the David Lynch type. Um, one represents, and 
yeah, in, in my own work, I have a paper that's currently on the review in which we study exemplary directors. And we argue that all these directors sort of capture are basically one hill that also yeah. new directors can all aspire to. So they, they can try to be the new Hitch, Hitchcock, but they can also try to be the new Spielberg and they can also try to be the, the new sort of French artistic uh, director. Um, Francois Truffaut is, is the most named one out of, out of all of them. Um, but so, so that represents a very, very varied uh, landscape. I think uh, I did um, a stupid coding exercise for the descriptions um, that the New York Review of Books does for its back. So it has a sort of translation catalog of forgotten classics. It used over 800 titles and authors that it invoked as markers of quality. Yeah. So apparently this literature landscape is incredibly rich with competing notions of quality. And yeah. sometimes this doesn't happen. And I think that actually often has something to do with an institutionalization that goes wrong in a bad way. So I think universities suffer from this, right? So yeah, we, we talked about this before. So I think we're more or less on the same page, but everybody tries to be number 50 on this one world <laughs> list. Whereas of course, yeah, yeah. we want them to be the number one liberal arts college. We want to be them to be the number one medical science or uh, yeah. and, and then even within that, a specific approach, we don't all want them to be generic universities that all strive to be on this Mount Everest list, Everest list somewhere between one yeah. and 50. Um, that's, that's just, that creates uniformity. And yeah, this goes back to the story of incentives, I think. Yeah, yeah. and also I think to Ariel's point about the, the neoliberalism. I, I, in my view is that the, the, the failure of neoliberalism that people that are critics like Quinn or others, uh, you know, miss, they are much more like there's a diversity of ways in which people can interact. And so the liberal archipelago doesn't have a one size fits all. Even if you take an extreme libertarian presentation like in Nozick, when you get to the final chapters of Nozick, it's about a radical pluralism of, of lifestyles or whatever. It's experiments in living. There's a, an old book by Steve Macedo called Liberal Virtues, and he argues about liberalism as a smorgasbord of life experiences that you can select in and out of. It's not just this cookie cutter, one size fits all, which is summarized in like the Washington Consensus. So the idea that the Washington Consensus sums up the nature of what we all thought was the way to go, I think is not quite right. That's why I say it's weird for me because I stand inside of it and I don't see myself in the criticism. So it's very, now that might just be because I'm afraid to be criticized, right? Or something, but I just don't see it really. And, uh, but I do yeah. see it on the others. I, I, I wanted to just mention a very interesting episode at HES Stefan was there. I'm not sure if you were there at the meetings, but it was in New York uh, two years ago. And Quinn had given a talk and then Susan Housen gave a talk. And in Susan Housen's talk, she was criticizing Quinn's talk because she wanted to claim that the architects of the post-World War II economic uh, era were not Hayek and Friedman or whatever, but instead Keynes and, you know, James Mead. Uh, James Mead and these people. And she was very proud of what they had done. And to me, I think she's right that that's actually who the architects were. And, you know, one of the architects is actually your topic that you're working on at the moment. Yeah. And so maybe we can just 
flow into that, which is you go from the Austrians into Jan Tinbergen. Uh, Tinbergen is the, 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 um, the, the, the first winner of the Nobel Prize in economics, right? Um, Samuelson's the second. I think that's right, right? Yeah. And, and so, you know, you're writing the, the book on him now. And, and he was a, an architect of the world order, right? So, yeah. 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 So, so um, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, currently, well, the, the book is with the printer, so uh, there's nothing I can do about it anymore. I, I'm, I'm, I'm translating oh, well, my, congratulations. My, my, yeah, thanks. Yeah. So uh, I'm translating my own book into Dutch, which is a weird alienating experience about my own <laughs> writing. But uh, um, other than that, yeah, no, so it's an intellectual biography of Jan Timberg and who indeed is, is mostly famous in economics for his econometric models of the 1930s and then uh, later for so-called policy models which allow you to manipulate the economy as a sort of complex machine and you have certain knobs that you can turn which he calls instrument variables and then you can use them to achieve certain target variables so it's a very um, yeah very very much an engineering approach um, to economics now I do think that I, to me, he was he, he's, he's still fascinating in, in a number of ways and not so much for the econometrics. He was a, very much a, an, an, an idealist all the way from the very beginning. So that's also how I position him uh, in yeah. the book. I start with a discussion of the building of the Peace Palace, and that actually speaks to this internationalist spirit. So, um, right, that the Peace Palace in The Hague sort of leads into the League of Nations that's yeah. later built um, and where he does a major study and then but very constrained. We now know that he wanted to publish a lot more than he could say, but at the time, the League of Nations could only offer so-called technical advice. Um, and so later he became very much an outspoken uh, proponent of a, a, a truly internationalist order. Um, mm. So for example, in the post-World uh, War era, when Europe tried to integrate and unite, he was very skeptical of the whole undertaking because he said, well, you know, it just means you're gonna build walls around Europe. And it's going to go come at the expense of um, emerging economies like India and Brazil and, and so on. And um, yeah, it's just going to be a, a, so a sort of a safe haven for uh, um, the wealthy already uh, at the expense of at the expense of others. And um, yeah, so so, that, so there's that side. He was also a, a fascinating thinker about the what he called the race between technology and education. Um, which is, is still highly relevant today in the sense that, yeah, um, yeah automatization and the effects that that has on, especially the lower end of the, the working workforce um, is still a major challenge. And he, he uh, so he pioneered a lot of the models in that direction. Jim Hackman is a, is a great fan of that. He did a wonderful yeah. retrospective piece on, on that. So that, that links, links up well. Um, but I'm, I'm again also really trying to show how environment matters. Um, right, uh, yeah, Tyler Cowen on his blog occasionally has this phrase, every thinker is a local thinker. But yeah. I really tried to make him uh, emerge out of The Hague, uh, which is a small government city, much like Geneva, uh, of an open trading economy. And I tried to, again, demonstrate how that shapes his outlook on life. Um, yeah, I, I did a wonderful course again, every now and, uh, and every now and then you really have to go to the humanities people to, to learn from them. Um, and they did. Um, they made us read a biography of Thoreau. Uh, Thoreau is, is that how you pronounce it? The, the American uh, poet. Yeah. And there, uh, Thoreau emerged out of the 
the woods out of the environmental surroundings almost. Yeah. So it was a wonderful first chapter. I hope that I, I can get anywhere close, that sort of thinking. But so I, I tried to show that. And yeah, he was, um, yeah, Samuelson called Tim Bergen a, a noble saint or something of the sort. So he had imbued this socialism at a young age. It was called cultural socialism at the time, and it meant pursuing a certain lifestyle. Perhaps there's some, some of that in, in Ario, actually, that it, it has to, your ideology is part of almost every you decision are. you make, yeah. yeah, who you are. And so it's a very much an identity, uh, identity way of thinking about and so that meant all sorts of consequences that he never had a car and he couldn't afford luxuries. Yeah, he, he's sometimes reminiscent of the Quakers. So, and he also felt attracted to the Quakers. He spent a year at Haverford. I hope to, to go there. We, and I'm now in contact with the, with the people there um, because it's such an, an interesting connection between, uh, between the sides. So again, I tried to really show him as a, as a full individual. And uh, yeah. yeah, that's amazing. And so that, project is now completed uh when will it be out and and with who um, and all of that um they promised they me on mid, mid, mid june of next year so i hope that um that succeeds um with cambridge university press again um yeah yeah and then yeah i also have a book on the knowledge commons coming out uh, that is, that's an edited volume um and there we really show sort of um yeah pools of knowledge and how important they are in uh, enabling market exchanges. So, uh, yeah. so two last questions. I, I'm very cognizant that I'm taking up a lot of your time and it's late in the day. And so you're supposed to be relaxing or going up to a hill to, to contemplate since you're in Europe. Uh, yeah. Um, by the way, when I was in Rotterdam with you, when I, uh, Ario kept on telling me about American consumerism. American consumerism, American consumerism. And then I get in, uh, I screwed up and I couldn't figure out how to take the, the metro rail to get to the airport. So I ended up by getting a cab, which cost me an arm and a leg. But yeah. the cab driver had the radio on and they were just releasing the amount of consumer debt that was in the Dutch uh, you know, population. And I wanted to tell the guy, turn me around. I want to talk to Ario about this. But anyway, no. Uh, so you teach courses to artists, musicians, uh, painters, you know, uh, whatever, and, and also people that are going to go into that business. Yeah. And yet you also bring to them a socioeconomic kind of perspective or whatever. And so what, so as I, I, I explained to you some of the things our kids are reading in this class, what kind of literature do you think we're missing here that you would uh you know point to as rich veins of of research and and learning that we could draw on to help improve our understanding of socioeconomics yeah so so there's there's one book which to me was really an eye opener and the book has flaws um but it's in conversation with with economics very very deeply so i think in that sense it's it's a very good book. It's by Lucienne Carpic, and it's called Valuing the Unique. It's the economics of singularities. And so he picks up on, his economic discussion picks up on the early discussions over monopolistic competition and how we think about a product differentiation. Yeah. Um, and he develops that into the modern service economy of, let's say, legal services or financial services that are completely personalized, but also into the market of wines. He's French, so he, he, he wants to say something about the enormous variety on, on markets. And in that book, he 
developed something that he calls judgment devices. And he says these judgment devices are almost the most important cognitive structure, the most important coordinating, me coordinating mechanisms of uh, on markets. Um, and so, yeah, you could, he, he actually sides with Akerlof. I don't know whether he's on the side of Akerlof or not, but to me, that is really in sort of economic sociology, the, the way I teach it is, yeah. is a key reference, this, this idea of judgment devices and the, the rich variety of judgment devices and how that allows for a kind of quality coordination to take place on these markets. Um, yeah, that's a, I yeah. That's a Jens, Becker, Jens Beckert is another author who's really emphasized the sort of deep uncertainty underlying these modern markets and how, yeah, right, Hayek marveled. But I think we should get that some, some of that sense of marvel back in the sense that these are really, every product is different. So yeah. in, in some sense, price coordination is not what happens here, right? In a, in a very real sense, I always tell my students, there is no price coordination in cultural markets. Every movie that is released charges is, goes at the same price at the movie theater. The movie theater doesn't tell you take this one for, for a discount. There used to be B films, which were a mild example of that. But um, this is true also for books, new books that come out all go at the same rate. So there's a different type of, of quality coordination yeah. going on there. And I think, uh, yeah, Jens yeah. Beckert, yeah, we, we use his volume, The Worth of Goods, quite a bit, but they, all those chapters speak to it. Um, yeah, when, uh, when Howard the Duck was released, it went the same price as, you know, E.T. or whatever, right? Yeah. 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 Um, that's great. I mean, actually, I think that's that's uh, now just a question on this. When you read this, is most of the empirical side ethnographies, uh, case studies, statistical? I mean, how do they go about unearthing the, the stuff that they're pursuing? Yeah, a, a lot of it, it does tend toward the ethnographic, although I think the judgment devices has a, a strong institutional side to it. So okay, basically, yeah. Um, yeah um, they they think in terms of market types or coordination regimes um, as, as as a sort of institutional structure that that governs certain markets, and yeah, that, that their analysis also looks that way. It, it looks yeah. the way it would look in the Journal of Institutional Economics, as that you say. Well, there's this is one side of governing things. Yeah, that, and I want to I want to plug one paper that my my co-author uh, Pavel Kuchar wrote yeah. on um, the um, the economics of selling babies, or um, as we now call it, um, um, renting wombs. And this yeah. is a paper on surrogate motherhood. And yeah, if you want to talk about changing meanings of goods and how that also facilitates market exchange or hampers market exchange, right? It goes both ways because meanings of goods can, can work both ways. And right. um, they move in and out of being accepted. I always think child actors are another interesting example. Child labor is wrong, but child actors are, of course, necessary for yeah. the creative industries. But it, yeah, his paper really demonstrates how certain people have convinced that this is a service that you're pro providing to women who can't have babies otherwise. And so this is not an instance of selling babies, but this is an instance of renting a womb from somebody else and you're providing a service. And then of course, also the payment has to be justified. So this is the one thing we didn't really touch upon. But I think the, the other thing that I learned from sociologists always is that everywhere in society, people have to justify their acts. You always have to justify and you do so by, yeah, appealing to moral norms that govern somewhere, right? And sometimes you do so opportunistically, but those norms are never fully without 
consequence. Um, yeah. yeah, one of the most interesting papers I, or op-ed pieces that I read upon the Friedman anniversary was the fact that Friedman actually said, uh, Friedman actually made a moral argument when he said the only uh, purpose of uh, business is to pursue a profit. So he said businesses can justify their acts by saying we do this to maximize profit. They don't always have to rely on some other type of justification. But of course, we know that um, businesses rely on, on uh, lots of other justifications right. as well, right? They, yeah. they are green, they're socially aware, they, they don't uh, use child labor. And so these, these, all these actors are engaged in acts of justification. And then and, and that's an important other aspect of we just, social economy. We just had a very fascinating, I don't know if in Europe you had the same thing, but on Netflix, they released this film with the child dancers or yeah. whatever. And at first everyone was paying attention to it, and then there was outrage against it. And, you know, the directors were trying to justify that the reason why they did it was to actually expose the very thing that people are. Anyway, you know, and now when I go to my Netflix thing and I look down, it's not even on the list, you know, of, of like trending movies or anything. And so I think there's so many fascinating interaction effects between our, our utility scales and social approbation, social disapprobation, and how that in then impacts the way that we view these things that we have a very um, thin notion of what goes on if we don't take these into account, these yeah. factors. But, and, uh, but, but the example you give also highlights one other aspect, right? What are we consuming when we see that documentary? Are we contributing to that conversation? Are we yeah. making that conversation richer or are we consuming the series? Or the film. Yeah. I think this was a film. Or it was a film. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, so, so that's not at all obvious, right? So, yeah, that that's what Ariel always made me do. Like, don't look always look at the good. Look at what other things are being produced with that good. Yeah. And that, in part, was here a social cause, or yeah, or perhaps it was the rallying call of the Christian um, Christian conservative side, right? That yeah. tried to mobilize its base through this yeah. symbolic good. Um, yeah. But don't always yeah. look merely at the at the box office is, uh, to understand what's, go what, what's going on. So, Erwin, one last question, which is just, you know, you take it wherever you want here. I mean, I, I greatly, I mean, all these things are so rich with research agendas. I, 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 you know, economists are trained not to do ethnographies, but yet ethnographies are so rich. So, you know, pushing in that direction, I think is really important. Um, but um, you are, you have a lot of work in progress as well. So you finished the Tinbergen project, You've been involved, you have your finger in a lot of different projects. What most excites you about the work that's coming next? Um, so um, there's one thing we have on, under development um, that I, I, is, is not yet a paper, but it's this general idea that I wanna study gray zones. So gray zones are sites where exchanges or social activities happen that really shouldn't happen but where we close an eye. Now, if you yeah. come from the Netherlands, this is fairly obvious because Amsterdam is one big gray zone, right? And the entire world is attracted to come to Amsterdam because it's a gray zone, because you can smell uh, smoke marijuana. Apparently now there's yeah. more, more states in the United States that also allow for it. But for a long time, that was part of its, its selling thing. And of course, there was a red light district that was very right. prominent. And, and so this is a, a gray zone. You didn't see those markets elsewhere in society. But I think this happens... Uh, much, much more than we're aware of, that there are zones in the economy, um, free ports are a, a purely um, 
uh, economic example. Um, but there are all sorts of areas where we allow certain things to happen. And when the experiment goes wrong, we also sometimes in the end shut them down. But sometimes the experiment sort of succeeds. So it's a commune or another type of experiment. And then the thing ca catches on and then the practice actually becomes accepted. So it's a yeah. sort of, yeah, you could say an, a kind of institutional entrepreneurship in that what happens in those gray zones can be very important for promoting social change. And um, yeah, so the argument would be that, yeah, again, society benefits from this pluralism, right? And this pluralism is in, 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 in part uh, facilitated by having sort of insulated or separate zones in which certain things are allowed that you cannot do elsewhere. Um, and so we give a bit more leeway with we so, so we're watching it's, it's in our blind eye blind corner of our eyes but we we, we keep a, a small watch on it so it, it cannot blow blow up too much it can also not grow too big right silk road i think was another interesting example that you did you might think of as such a market if it would have remained small then it would have remained acceptable so there's also an internal dynamic within these gray zones that they're self-governing communities yeah. that make sure that the practice is not too visible or um, not too harmful to outsiders because then they know it will instantly be shut down, right? Yeah. So yeah, an illegal dance party also has all sorts of these elements. Like it, it can happen, but it, you shouldn't attract too many people because then there's crowd, uh, crowds outside and the, the police will notice and they will shut it down and, and so, so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, I know that you've, I mean, a fascinating thing on that is, is the, the meaning and understanding of corruption. So that, and how a gray zone shifts. So if you think about life under Brezhnev, right? Um, it was generally accepted. And then you have, uh, you know, Gorbachev come in and then eventually Yeltsin and you start having shifts to a more above ground economy. And now all of a sudden bribing and whatnot is actually the thing that causes all the problems. So, you know, these, what, what constitutes as gray shifts so much depending on the historical context it's kind of fascinating yeah so yeah, yeah it's yeah, a great that, topic yeah so um yeah david stark um that's perhaps one author i should should also mention he he's a great organizational scholar and his book a sense of dissonance also has a study of one of these uh, firms under soviet uh, times yeah. in which during the evening they were doing the really interesting stuff so indeed a uh, sort of example where this uh, yeah um, sort of going against the rules was ultimately socially beneficial, but indeed, right? It, it it can also be be the other way around, right? It can be practices that uh, for a long time sh really uh, sh should have been condemned, and that we turned a blind eye to because, uh, yeah, they 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 were part of culture. I think, yeah, and in some sense, that's what what fascinates people about American capitalism, right? Is that it's always has had these sort of rough edges, um, but yeah. Uh, yeah the, the current Italian economy is also uh, full of it, um, yeah. right? In, 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 in ways that are sometimes good, but there are some, some, sometimes also truly corrupting and sort of yeah. eating out parasitical on the- uh, on The, the real economy, economy yeah. yeah. All right, well, thank you very much. I greatly appreciate your time and, and you gave us a lot of food for thought. And so uh, good luck with all of your work. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. 
For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.